we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 94 of the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. It's the 4th of May, 2017. With me this week is Hugh Harris, the Rational Razor. Hugh, welcome aboard again. Thank you, Trevor. Good to be here. Excellent. So, Hugh, um, a slightly different podcast this time because we'll have a few uh, newsy sort of topics, but then we're going to discuss a bit of strategy for the secular movement and how it's going to work. So... Uh, so it might be a bit of introspection and reflection on the movement in the latter part of the episode, um, more so than sort of news articles. But we'll, we'll, we'll launch into the sort of some news articles to start with. And the first one, Hugh, is uh, in New South Wales, they had a, uh, an independent report in relation to special religious um, instruction in New South Wales classes. And that uh, was commissioned in 2014 and delivered to the government in 2015. But the government only released the report last month, April 2017. So, you know, alarm bells were ringing in the secular movement, I'm sure, just because of the delay in in releasing it. And, uh, well, we'll talk about some of the findings and then generally about it, Hugh. But uh, the report found... 22% of principals had received complaints from parents about what religious instruction teachers were teaching. Some of the complaints from parents claimed that there were inappropriate topics discussed that had disturbed or frightened their child, with many of the lessons being too evangelical. Some children were taught that people who do not believe in God would die young, people who did not love Jesus were the enemy, and children who stopped going to scripture would go to hell. Some of the materials said cancer was a consequence of sin and a gift from God. The report found some teachers were teaching fundamentalist or literal interpretations of scriptures that were anti-science, including teaching creationism and claiming dinosaurs never existed. (laughs) So that sounds like the sort of thing that's no surprise to you or I or many of the listeners. But Education Minister in New South Wales, Rob Stokes, dismissed the complaints raised in the reports as anecdotes and not evidence of systematic of systemic problems in religious instruction in government schools. And it seems, Hugh, that very little is going to change. One of the things they asked for was at least in secondary school make it an opt-in system rather than opt-out, and they wouldn't even agree to that. And um, uh, other than a bit of, perhaps a bit of tinkering on the edges... Nothing's going to change, Hugh. Is that, is that a fair summation of what's happened with that? That's a very fair summary. That's how I would describe it. And I've gone through all the emotions on this one. Anger, frustration, uh, derision. And now I'm sort of I'm getting to the stage where I'm almost beyond caring. I've written articles about it. Um, they're not going to change anything. Um, Premier Mike Baird, there's a YouTube video of him uh, talking to a faith group where he he blatantly just says that they're not going to change anything with um, special religious education because of his personal faith and that he was committed to it under hell or high water. 
And that was whilst uh, they were waiting for the review to be released. Mm. Um, Rob Stokes, the education minister, went to a theological college himself. Yes. Uh, well, was it was it a Shaw College? Is that a theological college? Is it just a stock standard Anglican grammar school? He went to some. He he studied. He actually studied something theological. Right. Okay. Because uh, I did a little bit of a. Because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how is it that this guy hasn't changed anything? And I thought, well, is he some sort of evangelical Bible basher? And I did a quick Google search of his bio, and it didn't seem to indicate anything other than an ex-lawyer with an interest in urban planning and membership of various, you know, young lawyer groups. And he didn't seem to me to be particularly theological, but um, oh, well, I'll, yeah. I'll look up a bit more and might enlighten people by the next episode. But something, yeah. that was my initial reaction, was there has to be some uh, indoctrination in his mind not to do anything. And you yeah. think that's the case? I, I am, I'm confident that's the case. I looked that up. Um, right. I, haven't, I hadn't mentioned it before. Um, I'm just going through to see if I can find it. But... Um, but regardless of that, I think it's, you know, it's a number of other factors. It's it's how strong the lobby groups are. It's um, Reverend Fred Nile hold, holding the balance of power. Yep. And um, and this is why people like Rob Stokes, I think, get into the education portfolio. You notice on the Labor side, there's an ex-Islamic um, teacher in New South Wales who's the shadow spokesman who's said nothing, absolutely nothing about um, the government's disgraceful performance in um, in um, whitewashing the special religious education report, um, so I don't know. It's 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 dreadful. I think Ferris are doing quite a good job in trying to raise awareness for it. Um, you have journalists like Joanne McCarthy in the Newcastle Herald writing great pieces one after the other. Uh, in um, New South Wales secondary schools, um, I think more than half. Uh, opt out of it even though they make it more difficult to opt out so um, I think most of the classes are fundamentalist the most common resources connect which is explicitly fundamentalist it teaches that the bible is literally true and you have um, preachers like Ron Onks Ron Onks taught in uh, five or six um, Gold Coast schools for the last five years and is a missionary from Mm. the U.S who brags um, in his um, correspondence, which is on the internet, he brags that he's made 120 conversions in the last two months. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <They're>, uh, <laughs> it can't get, it just can't get more explicit than that. And I, I think there's just this attitude that we need to, we, we need to put up the facade of Christian values to shore up our society, and it's um, and it's felt by people who are not necessarily Christians, but people of a more conservative bent, mm. and it's stronger in New South Wales than it is in other places. So I think things may change, but this might go on to part of our next discussion, but there's a strong resistance to any change. When I was researching articles, I rang up ART consultants, the people who did the report. Oh, yes. And right. they... And they said to me uh, this about a year ago that no one would like the, the results of the report. And when you see what it's come out with, that it was fairly strongly critical of a number of aspects. And then the government did nothing about any of the main recommendations. You can see why the government uh, sat on it for about 16 months. They just didn't know what to do with the information, despite paying 300 grand on it. Right. Yeah. Right. 
So when they said nobody would like the results, they were really referring to the fact that nobody in government or in opposition would like the results. There were plenty of secularists who, who would like the results, <laughs> yes. but they don't count. No. Uh, here. Okay, okay, dear listener, bear this topic in mind because later on we're, we will have a general discussion of, you know, are we wasting our time sort of concentrating on a grassroots movement? So, and it's inspired partly by what's just happened in New South Wales. So before leaving that topic, uh, just to sort of, we're all aware of uh, echo chambers that we can be in and we hear confirmation of our own ideas all the time. And for my sins, Hugh, I subscribe to Eternity magazine. Are you, do you subscribe to that one? Yeah, I do as well. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that disgraceful? Uh, Just before moving on, I just uh, um, Wikipedia'd Rob Stokes. He has a um, diploma of Bible studies (sighs) at the the Ministry Training College in Oxford, Oxford Falls. And he also has a Master of Laws. So, um, so there you go. It all yeah. makes sense. Yeah. It all yeah. makes sense. Okay. Keep that in mind, dear listener. Back to um, to the Eternity magazine and um, uh, their response to the review was the headline, Big Tick for Scripture Classes in Schools. Christian groups in New South Wales have welcomed the results of a state government review. A very high rate of participation is revealed. Students <laughs> at 92% of primary schools and 81% of secondary schools take part in scripture. Uh, I am pleased to report I am pleased that the report confirms special religious education has overwhelming support, is working well and is an integral part of the holistic education offered by New South Wales public schools, so said uh, Glenn Davies, Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. So that's just to show, dear listener, of course you already knew that whatever echo chamber you subscribe to will provide what you want to hear when you want to hear it. That's a classic example. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, here, okay. Um, Hugh, who is Dr. Kevin Donnelly, and 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 have you got an issue with him? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it appears as, as if as if I might. He's one of those people who particularly get on my nerves. Um, he's a senior, someone very a senior fellow, I think it is, at the Australian Catholic University, and he was employed along with Kevin Wiltshire by the Howard government um, to do a review of the national curriculum. I think it was the Howard government. It may have been the Abbott government. It was under Christopher Pine, I think. Um, And at the time, it was noted as to how biased and conservative those two were. His main um, impetus is making sure the Judeo-Christian ethic and Western civilization gets plonked straight back into the curriculum because the lefties have um, apparently taken it all out and and replaced it with Aboriginal rights and um, other progressive ideas. 
Um, and so he just he he's really quite heavily supported by News Corp. He gets a lot of um, articles printed and always writes basically the same thing that we have to remember the influence of the Bible and uh, our Christian heritage, or else our whole society is going to fall apart. He, he does. He's also quite strongly anti-Islamic as well, which is kind of a little bit unusual. Where a lot of the Christian clerics, you know, will promote their own cause and not be quite as scathing about uh, Islam as what Kevin Donnelly is. He's not afraid to have a good dig at them, is he? No, not at all. And um, he also writes regularly in The Australian about how we need to keep funding independent Catholic schools, Mm. uh, of which, you know, you couldn't find uh, someone less objective about that fact than a fellow at the Australian Catholic University. Mm. So um, I find his opinion pieces quite frustrating and that's why I wrote one in in retort to that. Um, I was asked to write that actually by the editor of the Courier Mail, so it wasn't something that I offered. Right. And and then um, there was some issue in getting and getting it published, so um, I had to remove all reference to Kevin Donnelly out of the article, and therefore the article that I sent you about um, Christian values in Australian society, which was published in Rendezvous for the Daily Tele- Telegraph, had all reference to Kevin Donnelly removed out of it. So um, ah, right. Okay. didn't quite make as much sense as what the original article did. Right. Okay. So, well, that's interesting just how uh, media works. So yeah. the initial article by Kevin Donnelly, I think on the 11th of April, was basically saying, um, let's celebrate the role of Christianity in our culture, uh, proven by the celebration of Easter. While we are a secular society, we are also a culture deeply influenced by Christianity and the Bible. And uh, while the Bible is not the sole arbiter of what constitutes right and wrong, it represents an essential place to start, was the gist of his article. And, yes. And Hugh, you've uh, made a few points there in your response. Uh, nine out of ten Australians no longer attend church. Um it's no longer essential part of Australian life. Um, Kevin Donnelly made this point about the Bible being so important to English language, and you pointed out that it was first translated to English uh, only in the 16th century. It took quite a while, didn't it? And <laughs> a much, amid much theological outrage at the time. And uh, so, here, you know, if we're really to think that the Bible is the word of God and there really is an afterlife and a heaven and hell, it to me is amazing that Christianity and the Bible don't have more influence than what they have. Like, if it really was the case, then we'd never stop talking about it. It would be all we ever talk about. But It would be. It's uh, it's frightening, really. I, You know, you, you see those things that are written by Kevin Donnelly. Does, does he really believe that the Ten Commandments are the moral values that we live by or should live by today. Otherwise, you know, that you should worship only one God, the real God, on pain of death, well, that you shouldn't, make, you shouldn't make graven images or he will punish you down to the, what is it, the third and fourth generation. Are these moral um, prescriptions? Is this what he believes in? 
I think he does. I think these people just get delusional enough. I was interested in that one as well, where he's basically saying our, our legal system and our political system draws heavily on Christian morality and the Ten Commandments. And I, I had another quick look at the Ten Commandments. And out of the ten, Hugh, there's only three that are actual laws in place in our society, which is thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbour, which, okay, in a court of law, you you know, it's a crime to, you know, um, perjure yourself, and, and as a moral thing, you know, you don't tell lies about other people. But the rest of it, the first four are all about, you know... Um, there's only one God, no craven images, uh, don't blaspheme, and remember the Sabbath. I mean, those first four, we just throw out the window straight away. Honour thy father and thy mother. Well, that's, there's nothing in our legal system about that. And if you're unfortunate enough that your father or your mother is a, is a mass murderer, then you wouldn't honour them. Um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well... We don't make it a crime, so no. plenty, plenty of people do it. Yeah, uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, pointed out that you'd be you'd lose most of your literature if you, uh, <laughs> if, you <laughs> if there was a complete ban on that. Yes, and uh, you know, don't covet your neighbour's house, wife, servants, or animals. You know, well, we can all look at the neighbour's nice house next door and go, "Geez, I wouldn't mind a nice house like that." Like there's no, you know. That one, the last one is is the absolute indictment of the Ten Commandments, I think. Uh, um, firstly, uh, the coveting thy neighbour's uh, wife's ass. Right, uh, yeah. <laughs> but the, the actual indictment is that it makes it absolutely clear that this is only, that the Ten Commandments only apply to slave-owning men. Yes, because the slaves, uh, wives, uh, just basically chattel of the men, the same as oxen are, and um, donkeys, etc. So it, it makes it obvious that that's who they believed in those days were moral agents, yes. demonstrating the immorality of the... And how out of touch this the whole thing is. Yeah. It's um, laughable to think that, that that's the morality of today. And... Um, you know, and the I guess the big fallacy of the arguments that this guy Donnelly just he just tropes out every every three months or so is that just because something was considered morality three thousand years ago or six thousand years ago when the commandments were first mentioned, that doesn't mean that we need to abide by them today. If we came, we we all came from hunter gatherers. Originally, it doesn't mean that we need to live by the same morality or ascribe any particular value to the morality in hunter-gatherer societies today. It means we've superseded them and our other ideas have superseded those original ideas. And, of course, when Christianity was um, kicked um, and dragged uh, screaming through the Enlightenment, that was when those um, values were superseded by democracy um, and by secularism, uh, religious freedom, and all of those things. And yet Kevin Donnelly, infuriatingly in his articles, tries to maintain that the Enlightenment was really uh, uh, something that was due to Christianity in, yes. the sense that, in the sense that it was a Christian innovation. 
um, yes. failing to omitting that it was due to Christianity in the in the sense that the Enlightenment rose above the dogma of Christianity to um, to bring us the modern world. So. You and I and most of the listeners would would recognise all of this, and yet we still have to um, read read this stuff written uh, year on year by Kevin Donnelly. And I don't know if you saw the comments section of the article that I wrote in the Daily Tele- Telegraph, but it concerns me that a, a quite a high proportion of the readership, at least the ones who comment on that uh, website, um, seem to agree that Christian values are the glue holding our society together and that we need to raise them like a crucifix to a vampire uh, <laughs> to, to, uh, to ward off ex- Islamic extremism uh, rather than pluralism and religious tyranny. So, um, yeah, so there are my views um, on Kevin Donnelly. One of the uh, things he's trotted out a couple of times in his articles is about uh, how the American money has In God We Trust printed on it. And he makes a big thing of this, but he he never points out that it only happened on the banknotes in 1957 in America. (laughs) Yeah. And then up until that time... Yeah, up until that time it was... Pluribus unum, which is uh, literally out of many, one. So that was like a de facto motto for the United States, and then uh, and they changed that to "In God We Trust," but only as recently as 1957. Um, <laughs> so he never uh, points that out. And the other one, Hugh, was uh, we hear it a lot lately. Uh, this expression, Judeo-Christian. Mm, yes, and yes. Uh, you've 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 got a bee in your bonnet about Judeo-Christian as a as an yes. expression as well. Yeah, I particularly um, uh, find this one annoying. Um, unsurprisingly, the um, supposed alliance between Jews and Christians and Judaism and Christianity never really. Um, was known about, talked about, or even existed before the uh, Holocaust in the Second World War, and it largely arose as a commonly used term after that for Christians to to um, to put across a solidarity with the Jewish faith in America, mm-hmm. and then it was resurrected again in the 80s with the Moral Majority, who sought to use it as a way to revive Christian values in political discourse. And since then, it's been part of the um, the uh, Republican right and also the Australian rights um, mantra. Judeo-Christian in order to remember our roots and to remember where our values come from, whereas it's actually a myth. Um, You know, there was no alliance when Martin Luther wrote his um, pamphlet entitled On Jews and Their Lies when he referred to them as poisonous, bitter worms whose houses should be raised and they should be made to work by the sweat of their brows and um, taken from the... Martin Luther said that about Jews. Yeah, Martin Luther... um, Yeah, Martin Luther also said during the Reformation that the Catholic Church, we should... should, make war with the Catholic Church so that we can wash their blood from our, from our hands. Yes. So, um, you know, he um, and that, that pamphlet of Martin Luther was um, passed around at the Nuremberg rally and other Nazi uh, rallies. Right. And, 
Yeah. So the, you know, the, um, it's ironic, isn't it, that this Judeo-Christian values, which first came out of a sort of um, guilt complex at the um, anti-Semitism that led to the Holocaust, is now being flung in our faces, the the root of Western civilization, which um, which is basically a, a mythical term, and a Monash University academic and several ap- academics have debunked this. Um, I can't remember his name, but um, it was mentioned in the Donnelly article. Um, that um, the whole myth of it has been um, has been written up and um, historically analysed by the, um, the Monash University academic. Yes, um, uh, I, I did a bit of reading as well when I knew you were going to be on this topic, and uh, that was interesting. That it was post World War Two in the US that they uh, coined the phrase to try and include Jews into mainstream society, and. Uh, and sort of post 9-11, it's, it's, it's a meaning that's used to exclude Islam. If you talk about Judeo-Christian, you're really also just saying not Islamic. And, uh, and the other sort of reason it gets used is Christians can trot it out. Um, Judeo-Christian values, um, with the word Judeo being a bit of a red herring, and what they really mean is just Christian values, but rather than exactly, it being yes. too parochial, they can, they can dress it up as Judeo-Christian, um, taking the sort of Christian conservative edge off it and giving it some sort of historical meaning um, and softening the sort of evangelical uh, sound to it, I think, is what they like about it, um, rather mm. than just saying straight out Christian values. Um, they can say Judeo-Christian and and sound more rational and reasonable. Um, in an article which I will link, which is from the conversation, uh, this person, uh, academic journalist, oh, da, 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 I can't go. Chloe Patton says that. Um, uh, if you type Judeo-Christian into the Australian Parliamentary Library website uh, under their search tool, uh, the expression Judeo-Christian does not appear in Australia until 1974. Yes. Um, and it's used in the 70s, 80s and 90s in only a handful of contexts without any apparent consistency. Um, most of the um, search results for that expression uh, from 2001 onwards. So as an expression in Australian society, you would be quite safely in saying that it didn't really exist until 2001, the Judeo-Christian whatever. Yeah. There's also um, the the Monash University academic I was talking about is Tony Taylor, and he wrote a great article in The Guardian 13th of January 2014, where he goes through all of this, and more so also, it's um, it's um, original theological um, term was based on the supersessionist or replacement view of Judaism with Christianity. Mm-hmm. 
so that Christianity is regarded as the religion that is superseded and uh, it's outmoded and irrelevant precursor and consequently a redundant Judaism is regarded in condescending fashion as an anachronism. And that was written about by, uh, so Jewish scholars are not too happy about that, um, as unsurprisingly. And so they've written various books about it. The Myth of the Judeo-Christian Tradition by Arthur A. Cohen. Um, Jews and Christians, The Myth of a Common Tradition by Jacob Neusner in 2001. And so um, the uh, Judeo-Christian harmony ignores to a 2,000-year narrative of theological antipathy and millennium-long narrative of violent persecution of Jews in the name of Christianity. So um, it's basically a, a neoconservative um, myth. And you've only got to think about it a short time. They just don't have a lot in common because Christians traditionally do their best to avoid mentioning the God of the Old Testament um, yes. and and really concentrate on on their relationship with Jesus and and you know really try and avoid some of those old biblical stories from the Old Testament and of course Judaism is the Old Testament so uh, and doesn't recognize you know Christ as being a God at all so they've yeah they're oil and water in, in many respects. If you're talking about mixing the two together in the one phrase, it really doesn't make sense. Not at all. Now, topic for discussion, which is sort of prompted by what happened in New South Wales and, you know, my resignation from the secular party and just looking at what's happening in the world in general in Australia. Um, Hugh, are we wasting our time trying to build a grassroots movement for secularism is the question. Uh, and that, yeah. that appears to me what we've been trying to do is that we are forming groups everywhere and we're trying to get mums and dads and individuals to join the group and to, to make you know, policy suggestions and, and, um, and demand from the bottom that things change and call on our leaders and say, here's evidence, here's rational reasons why, here are studies, here's surveys, here's what's happening. You know, we, this democracy of Australia, want change. That's That's been our, our process, I think, in how we're yeah. trying to change things. Yeah. And I'm going to put forward the case, Hugh, that we're wasting our time. So, <laughs> that's cast a gloom over the podcast, well, isn't well, it? Well, no, not necessarily, because because like the gloom on the podcast is that decision in New South Wales, and we could look at that and go, well, it's just hopeless. Let's give in. But if we can actually look at it and go, well, there's a very good reason why you know, this shows a true path forward. We need to change what we're doing. Then yeah. perhaps we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. But if we just keep on doing what we're doing, then it's a very dark tunnel with no light. So, so I'm actually, I'm actually switching tracks on the railroad to a different tunnel where I think there's a little bit of light at the end of it, and I'm mixing all my metaphors up at once here. But, um, <laughs> dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. 
Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. To kick off with some ideas, uh, dear listener, I'm going to uh, refer you to an article by George Monbiot where he did a bit of a review of a book called Democracy for Realists. And I have that book, dear listener, and I've read it, and it's uh, very interesting, and we have discussed it in the podcast previously. So to refresh your memory of some of the ideas, I'll just quote a few bits from this article before we go much further. Uh, Democracy for Realists uh, by social science professors Christopher Aitchen and Larry Bartels argues that the folk theory of democracy, the idea that citizens make coherent and intelligible policy decisions on which governments then act, bears no relationship to how it really works or could ever work. Uh, In the book, they describe how most people are too busy uh, and don't care enough to investigate and evaluate policies. We don't behave as the folk um, theory suggests. Um, uh, the reality is most people possess almost no useful information about policies and their implications, have little desire to improve their state of knowledge, and have a deep aversion to political disagreement. We base our political decisions on who we are rather than what we think. We act politically not as individual rational beings, but as members of social groups expressing a social identity. Um... The reality is, and this is true, the parties make the policies and we fall in line. And to minimise cognitive dissonance, we either adjust our views uh, or we avoid discovering what the party really stands for. Um, Hugh, that's, that's the key thing I'm going to try and get across here, is, is, um, is people don't understand the policy of their party. They just... They'll they will uh, they'll have a cultural identity. They'll say, um, actually, I've written some here. Um, you know, I care for others and the environment, and I'm super unselfish. Well, I'll vote Greens. You know, I'm poor or working class. I'll vote Labor. I'm rich or hoping to be, or or I'm socially conservative. I'll vote Liberal. I'm a farmer. I'll vote Nationals. I'm pissed off with major parties. I'll vote One Nation. Like. It's, it's how do you identify, then you pick a party or a leader, and then you really don't care about the details. Like, um, and study after study has shown that people have no idea of the details of their, of their political parties, and they'll just fall into line. So, mm. you know, in something like the New South Wales decision, had the government simply said... Um, you know what, uh, we need to change SR special religious, we're going to scrap it and just get rid of it like they did in Victoria. Um, the, the average Joe who's voted for, what are we talking about there? In New South Wales it's a Labor government? Liberal, New South Wales is a Liberal. It's a Liberal government. People would have gone, okay, I'll wear that. Like, they, they just wouldn't care. They, if, if the leadership changed the way it was done the people would just fall into line. They wouldn't lose any votes over it. Um, when John Howard introduced the school chaplains program, there was no discussion of 
school chaplains as a possible policy. There was no groundswell from the people wanting it. He just, you know, he just decided, oh, I'm going to introduce school chaplains because I think that's a good idea. And people just went, oh, okay, well, that's good. Now, if you try and get rid of it, all these people will say, well, that's, you know, part of our policy. We don't want to change it. Mind you, if a... If a new leader came in, if Malcolm Turnbull said, we're going to get rid of school chaplains and we're just going to give the money to the schools for whatever purpose they want to, people would just fall into line. So my thinking, Hugh, is um, we, you know, all of the different groups working and beavering away and trying to influence policy, we'd be far better spending our time as what lobby groups do, as in walking the corridors of power in the parliament houses and knocking on ministers' doors and talking to them and sitting with them and becoming mates with them and ear-bashing them about our stuff and inviting them to breakfast and and trying to influence the key decision-makers as to what's happening rather than through a groundswell of so-called public opinion. I mean, you've yeah. written lots of articles and you've got yes. them published. Do you reckon you've changed any... For a start, do you reckon you've changed anybody's mind out there? Like, do you think anybody's read it and gone, oh, actually, I think differently about this now? And, and, I'm gonna, um, and, and, and then, has any of them told their politician? And, and then <laughs> C, has a politician actually listened and cared? Um. Yeah, I, I, I see your point on, on, on that, and I, I generally agree with where you're going. And so maybe I'll tell you a little bit about uh, my experience. So I, I happen to know someone who's a minister in the Queensland government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I was relu- reluctant to use that um, friendship at all, but eventually, eventually I said, oh, look, can you get me a meeting with the education minister? And so I did, and I brought um, Queensland Secular Schools along to the meeting. Yep. And um, it was at the time where Windsor State School banned um, religious instruction because it was proselytising. Yep. And um, the government um, called a, a review into um, religious instruction where they made several recommendations for the Connect program to clean up their act and stop having inappropriate material. Um, I think um, I think um, some of the articles I did, I think they have a very limited effect. I agree with you. But um, a couple of the ones that I did about the horrifying religious instruction, about vampires in religious instruction, about but the, the beheading lessons, there was one about the beheading lessons which was shared in almost all media publications in Australia, including the Australian um, and, and copied to the Daily Mail and printed internationally as well. That that created a level of controversy about religious instruction, which helped um, uh, lobby groups to campaign to get the Queensland government to actually think about it and do something about it. So I think there's possibly a small contribution there. The um, the thing with um, debate also is that no one ever admits when you've changed their mind mm. or uh, in a comment section, you rarely, you rarely get the comment back that, oh, I read this article and I have completely changed my mind. Thank you very much. <laughs> I reckon you don't get it because people don't change their minds. 
They, they generally don't, and uh, I agree with that. But I, I think you can subtly influence um, people's opinions so that they um, that they change. I know my opinions have been influenced by what I've read in opinion pieces. I know yours would have been influenced by it. But y your course of action isn't to acknowledge that and write it in the comments because it's it's probably not really that interesting to other people to write it. Yeah. Um, so you tend to write whether you agree with the statement or not, as if you always hold that view, whether the whether it's in, influenced you or not. I think there is. I, I agree with you that I think we've got to be more lobbying focused. Without I reckon what, what you've just said to me, the most valuable thing you did was the meeting with the minister with the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools and yeah. um, and talked to her and and I had a meeting with her as well because I'm actually in her electorate so I could see her as a constituent and yeah and I reckon just a few people sitting across the desk and saying this is an issue to somebody who's actually in charge of the issue is is just so much more valuable than than um, outrage in echo chambers that you know she would probably never you know come across really and, no. and it just goes to show that in the new south Wales, you know like all of what you've said about the um the beheadings and everything was in uproar in new south wales but it had no effect on the decision you know with the sre in new south wales apparently because they've just gone ahead and still using the connect materials so yeah yeah i i think though the public opinion is is it's slower it's clunkier and you don't see an immediate effect whereas you go see a politician and you do see an immediate effect but you don't see any effect if they don't feel that it's going to that they have the public support on it and the other insight that i got from um having from uh, having some closeness to the political parties is that um, the ALP doesn't think that uh, religion or having a secular outlook is a vote winner. Mm. The religious lobbies... Hang on. Here, you just cut out then. Uh, you're saying that they don't think that uh, having a secular policy is a vote winner? No, they don't particularly think this issue is a vote winner. It's not that important. However, the outrage um, that occasionally occurs from religious lobbyists and they think that people with deep religious convictions will change their vote based on those convictions. So they are cautious in getting enmeshed in issues such as abortion, euthanasia, religious instruction. Um, and so, you know, my experience was... When I was talking to the politicians concerned, they they absolutely have worldviews that are not that different than Trevor Bell and Hugh Harris. Mm. They, when they were shown the actual materials taught to kids, their mouth dropped open. Okay, so they didn't know about it until you were across the desk and showing it to them. Exactly. Yeah, they didn't know, and um, they were shocked. Yeah. And they, they don't, even if even the ones with those religious convictions don't necessarily support the teaching of fundamentalism in, in uh, schools to children. Mm. So there's quite a few Christians who, uh, like Daniel Andrews, for instance, and, you know, uh, Father uh, Ron Bauer, 
Bowers in Sydney, Anglican, more progressive Uniting Church. The Uniting Church doesn't generally support the pushing of religion down other people's throats. Um, but it's a case of how whether they think it's going to influence votes. And so the impression that I've got is they think outraging religious lobby groups is a vote loser. Um, people will change their votes and not in your favour. Um, but um, the secular issues mentioned by Trevor and Hugh, really, we, you know, we agree with them. And yes, we'll eventually get there. But um, uh, look, we don't want. We 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 feel like we might be taking a risk, yeah, and I yeah. think they're wrong. I think they're wrong in that outlook. And um, it does support your view. It's it, exactly that lobbying has got to be more effective because we've got to talk to them and make sure they change that opinion. But you know, the th big thing that's going to change their opinion, in my view, is um, the gradual. Um, increase in non-believers as reported by the census and other polls. Once we get to the stage where we're like the UK and New Zealand, where we're 50% non-religious, how are they going to avoid us? How are they going to, um, how are they going to um, ignore secular views? And the, you know, when, when you change public opinion, and public opinion is going this way anyway, regardless of what we do, but um, once public opinion comes round, it will be overwhelming and the religious uh, lobby groups will have to take back and sit back and take note. And um, so I agree with you. Yes, we need more and more lobbying. But also, also, I think it's of value to try and influence public opinion. OK, so one of the things you've said there, I think, is that, you know, we've got scaredy cat politicians who who are just afraid to act. And yeah. so nice. I think that you know whether you've done a grassroots movement or whether you're doing a direct lobbying movement if you've got a gutless politician who's just afraid to act you know nothing will happen so you know you, you in order for change exactly. to occur you need a politician with some guts and if you're going to influence that politician then i think the most effective way is the direct lobbying where you're in their ear across the table saying look at this and if you get the right polit if you get a politician who's prepared to act then that method's going to work so like daniel andrews in victoria just went well i'm getting rid of it and he just did it and it was gone and uh, uh, yeah hang on though um there was a lot of negative publicity about um access ministries in victoria yes um they had Bible zines. They were yes. handing out magazines, giving really fundamentalist things that you um, that homosexuals are uh, bad, yes. uh, and uh, Puritan views on sex before marriage and all that sort of thing. There was um, that caused quite a controversy, and then there was quite a controversy because the CEO. Uh, of Access Ministries had said that we have a God-given opportunity and open door to make disciples of children in schools, and that was publicised. So along with the government being willing to act, there was the publicity which which provided the impetus for them to do so. Yes, yes. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you there's, there's some value to it. But yeah. With, but with limited resources... Um, uh, you know, if somebody, uh, a wealthy benefactor, was to die tomorrow and in their will left, you know, $10 million to a secular movement of some sort, uh, I, you know, some people would be tempted to be, you know, 
do advertising and hand out flyers and and talk to the grassroots and inform them and you know blah 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 and i'd be saying take all of that money and set up an office in canberra and and in the state parliaments and and have a lobbyist just employed to talk to politicians all the time or you know to me that would be just a much more effective thing we just have to have a situation where there's a politician with guts who's prepared to change and then we've got to be in the ear of of the politicians that's that's my thinking on it, Hugh. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I agree. With it. We don't do enough lobbying and we don't have the ear of people. Yep. And, and I, 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 don't, and I don't think I would have got in front of the minister without a personal connection there. Yep. And we, um, uh, we need to unite together a bit more, I think, the different groups and have a say. Um, I wanted to mention to you that one of the things that we're doing with the rationalists society is we're, we're hiring a CEO um, to start this lobbying and to focus more on um, on um, getting um, corporate support and um, um, greater support around the place to increase membership but also to increase media exposure. I think to, to be effective as lobbyists we've got to be out there in some way and the person that we're we're taking on to do that role hasn't been quite confirmed yet but that person had quite a um, significant role with the British Humanists Association and was quite heavily involved with um, Anthony Grayling AC Grayling yes over there and the message that she um, um, gave us was that they the difference between Australia and uh, the UK is that in every TV panel and every um, media uh, outlet over there the secular voice is represented. Yes. In Australia, yeah. no. We're just simply not represented. We're not on the panel. We're not on the drum. We're not on um, late line. We're not invited on Q&A. Yep. Um, and what's the difference between uh, Australia and um, the UK in that respect? I think it's high-profile people who come out and say that they're an atheist secularist and have a have a significant influence on public debate. And so those people in the UK are really prominent. There's Richard Dawkins, absolutely probably the world leader in terms of the atheist movement. He tweets something, millions of people are interested in that opinion. Mm. Who is there in Australia who is like that? Mm. No one. No one really. Yep. Philip Adams was a look for a while having debates with people, but, um, you know, J Jeffrey Robertson, who's UK-based, no one really, yeah. and so that's what we need for our profile, and so that's what that's what we're going to try and do. So it's a bit of bit of that as well. I think might yeah, help us. I think that's valuable if you can get somebody who's a well-known spokesperson. Then, on these various committees that are constructed over time to deal with different things, you get an invite onto them, and you get to meet the minister as part of that. So, I mean, one of the things with this Abdul Majid fiasco in the last few weeks with Anzac Day was, you know, just in her bio, the different... She was on some Anzac Day committee and she's on all sorts yeah. of other committees and gets a gets a foot in the door of power on these things, which which you get when you're a noted sort of spokesperson. Um, so I like the idea of somebody being, you know, well-publicised in the media with a view to them then getting a more personal relationship with... Uh, 
somebody with power. So yeah. Um, yeah. to me, that's the value of that role, not so much that they're going to convince the grassroots and there's going to be a French Revolution in Australia. Um, no, no. That's, that's the value of that, I see. So, so that would be good. Um, you know, the other thing, of course, you know, is should we be working on one of the major... Should we be trying to infiltrate the major parties and get a candidate up who's actually like a Manchurian candidate, if you like? Uh, <laughs> a fifth column within the uh, ALP or the... That's yeah. right. Who, who we can nurture and prosper, and then when they eventually become education minister, wham, bam, we switch them on and and, <laughs> and, and change things. Um, you know, no, no. like this is what the ACL does, is they have young leaders meetings. They invite people and say, are you interested in being a leader? Come to our, come to our you know, two-week seminar. We'll school you up on how to do it. And, mm. and they've, they're just seeding the uh, major parties with, um, with their like-minded people, and eventually they'll percolate through to the top. And, mm. you know, we need to be putting atheists into the major parties and trying to get some of them to percolate to the top and helping them out in every way we can. That's that's yeah. the other sort of issue. Um, that's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, we just probably don't have the resources that, say, the ACL does. But in going around and part of our, our, our focus is going to be getting donations and getting people to and bequests and getting people to commit money so that we can do that sort of thing. I think, mm-hmm. we, I think we need to do it. But one of the other things I wanted to talk about that you mentioned was that, you know, the failure of the campaign for the SRE in New South Wales, if we look mm-hmm. at it that way. Mm-hmm. But how was the New South Wales government able to simply get away with spending 300 k on a report, waiting nearly two years, releasing it in the week up to Easter, and then ignoring all of its recommendations? It got away with that because of general ignorance. It relied on the fact that um, people weren't informed and weren't interested in being informed. And that was part of the the, the quotes you read out from John Monbiot, is that informing, therefore, informing people does have an influence. And unfortunately, I don't think that Ferris or uh, myself or others was able to get, I wasn't able to get stuff in the media about religious instruction simply because I, I don't know did, did I maybe didn't write things well enough the things that I got in there were about classes where they were teaching kids to behead people and and teaching them about teaching seven-year-olds 13 and over vampire stories things that are just clearly outrageous and inappropriate they're willing to print that but they're not really willing to to print um, arguments back and forth uh, about it, so there was very limited coverage of that issue because it's just n- not seen as that important. So you need someone with a public profile to to make the statements. Yeah, hang on. But you're saying the reason they got away with it was because the general public didn't know, and and therefore didn't care. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I think I think part of it. I, I think part of it. The general public, as as you said, they just adopt their own silo 
in, in the absence of an actual good argument, but if they're told the whole outrageous circumstances and if that got fairly significant media coverage in the same way that, you know, uh, scandals get a significant media coverage and then people gradually change their view, they gradually say, look, there must be something in this that everyone's talking about it. And then they start to read the facts and they say, oh, okay, so these guys are teaching fundamentalism and creationism. Even though I'm a Christian and that I initially supported this, I don't support teaching uh, seven-year-old and six-year-old children um, that sort of information. It's th because that's pushing people away from Christianity, not towards it. See, my answer to that is it's quite possible that a large number of people were outraged and cared. It's possible. Yeah. But yes. what matters is the people in power, either the Minister for Education, the opposition uh, minister, or the newspapers. And if none of the people in power care, then there could well have been a huge number of people who were well and truly pissed off, but we'll never know. So yes. uh, it, it's possible that it's the, the fact they knew and there was a grassroots movement, but if people in power don't care, then nothing happens. Yeah. Um, but, it, yeah, the, the, the example that comes to mind with that is the New South Wales Greyhound ban. Remember when um, Mike Baird came out and banned Greyhound racing? Yeah. And yep. there, was an, um, there was outrage both from... Um, a good percentage of the general public, but then um, prominent people such as Alan Jones and um, lobbyists for the greyhound industry and the Daily Telegraph. The Daily Telegraph went off tap about that, mm. showing how the media can, can strongly influence the um, government. The fact that they backed down on that um, shows, I guess, both what we're talking about, what you're talking about, what I'm mm. talking about, the lobbying um, and also the power of the media to change the government's mind because the government can't do anything if it's just cons consistently enmeshed in controversy. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, it's a difficult one. I, I, I see, yeah, I agree 100% with your point there needs to be more lobbying, but I think there also needs to be a far greater media profile and it's a question, question mark as to how we get that. Mm. If we are going to do a, a work on a grassroots movement, Hugh, I yes. have one suggestion for everybody out there in the secular movement is let's stop using reason and start using empathy. Is is So from the podcast and what we've been looking at over the last 93 episodes, we've, we've come across a lot of information that, again, says people don't necessarily use reason and rationality to make decisions and... Empathy is the most powerful persuasive tool in the kit bag, and we don't use it enough. So, um, so uh, you know, my advice, for example, to are you still there here, or you could drop yeah, down? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm here. Um, to a group like Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools or Furious or whatever is is rather than arguments, you know, talking about consent and forms and enrolment percentages and the process and the content and parents' rights, mm -hmm. if you just paint the picture of a kid hauled out of a class with his friends and stuck in a broom closet being bored out of his brain with a little tear in the corner of his eye, 
that is far more powerful than all those other things. Like we've got to trigger people's empathetic reactions to the division and that this is causing. So we've got to get beyond, oh, it's all nonsense and and that and try and trigger empathetic responses in people. So um, like I said to Queensland parents, um, you know, I'd really like to do some interviews with some parents where they tell their horror stories or war stories of what's happened to their kids in SRI classes. And if we had a little montage of stories, to me, this that's really compelling. And they're the stories I remember from their meetings is, is yeah. those war stories. That's what's going to cause people to, to change and and less bogged down on the rational arguments and more on on employing the emotion in these things. Um, yeah. Uh, that, that would be... So, you know, the, the offer is still out there to Queensland parents and anyone else. If you've kid has been, you know, inadvertently put in an SRI class and, and, you know, things have happened, tell me and we'll record something and it'll be really interesting for people to hear about these things and could be quite motivating for people. Um, yeah. So yeah. that sort of also leads on to, um, Hugh, how well are the various secular groups coordinating and um, talking to each other and communicating and, and helping each other out? Because, you know, you wrote an article and said to me, oh, Trevor, can you try and promote this? So I wrote to the Secular Party Facebook people and said, you know, can you put this up? I'm not sure that they did until I asked a second time. Um, yes. I have asked you to promote the podcast on the Rationalist website, and I yes. don't think they have. And, no. you know, I've asked Queensland parents for secular state schools to send me people with war stories, and they don't they haven't as yet. And these are just examples where we, I think, as a movement, need to find ways to cooperate more. I mean, we've all got our little differences yeah. and our things that yes. we want to emphasise. But we just all operate independently, don't we? We do, yeah, and it's infuriating. And um, I just wanted to say how much I agree with what you just said about empathy and telling stories, and that's something that I've learnt myself in the last year and also was really reinforced by reading Daniel Kahneman's uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. And so if people want to get something out of what makes people make decisions, read that book. What's by it? Daniel, Daniel Kahneman's. Daniel Kahneman, a Nobel laureate. He's, um, he do, it's a summary of all of the psych- psychological testing and um, things that influence people's decisions. And it's an absolutely fascinating book because it, sh- it shows you, it, it's really interesting, it shows you the tests that they've done it gives you a chance to to note your own reaction and then it shows you how you make decisions and it demonstrates to you so effectively how your decisions are not generally made by the rational mind even when you think they are. It divides the mind up into intuitive, empathetic um, thinking, yep. system yep. one, and then system two, which is really the hard graft, arduous decision-making, which is actually takes a fair bit of effort to employ and we all, me, you, everyone, um, 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 system one thinking is actually the boss. System one is in charge of uh, system two. It takes um, specific um, conscious effort 
to engage system two. And that's why people are so influenced by stories. And we all are. I am. It's what's memorable. And it's exactly as you say, the little boy with a tear in the eye in the broom closet. When you said that, it invoked that image in in my mind of, of of the child in class. The most influential part of my argument that I've ever told on religious instruction is my story about my son doing it. Mm. And those are the crucial things. And so it, it does get to the point as to why our, our groups in uh, secular not helping each other enough. Mm. I often send my articles to the Atheist Foundation. They sometimes promote them. They sometimes don't. Um, the Rationalist Society told me they were going to promote this podcast, which I'm occasionally on. So we're promoting ourselves as well as as well as the secular podcast. Mm. But but they don't promote it. Yes, um, it's infuriating. Do, 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 who have you had? Like I'm, I'm looking here at um, Sacred to Secular book by Brian Morris. Uh, have you read that yes. one? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So Brian, I hope is going to be on the podcast next week, actually, and uh, I might yes. end up doing two episodes next week. And he's got a list in his book of various, you know, secular atheist, you know, humanist groups. There's dozens of them. You know, there's yes. Atheist Foundation, Rationalist. Secular Party of Australia, Secular Coalition, Sydney Atheists, Progressive Atheists, Melbourne Atheists, Adelaide Atheists, um, there's Skeptics Groups, there's Theorists, there's Humanists, there's Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools, there's a bunch of them. And, yes. Um, and, you know, how, how many of you had anything to do with Hugh? Yeah, probably not that many, but and I went to the Religious Freedom Roundtable yeah. and then there was going to be a secular round, uh, a Religious Freedom Roundtable in Melbourne. Yeah. And so there was a group set up so that everyone could talk to each other. Uh, and we sent emails to back and forth about what was going to be discussed. This was with Tim Wilson yes. when he was the Human Rights Commissioner. So in that, I had contact with several of them. Meredith Doig, who's the president of the Rationalists, is quite well networked with various different people in, in the different organisations. Yeah. I've met the um, the ex-president of the Atheist Foundation uh, in Sydney and I've interviewed um, the current president uh, who has the podcast out of WA, the, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, but... Um, so I've had a bit to do with them, um, Ferris, Queensland Parents with Secular State Schools, but it is noticeable, the thing that you said, that they won't promote things that are not absolutely 100% in line with their um, beliefs. For instance, I wrote... Hugh, just, you've, just cut, you've just cut out there, Hugh. You just said, for instance... For instance, I, I wrote an article over a year ago in ABC's The Drum about um, how religious freedom applies to people with no belief just as much as it applies to people with religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I shared it on Ferris's uh, Facebook page and I ended up in a um, argument I was told to rack off and (laughs) given quite a uh, stern lecture about how they don't welcome atheists um, putting their beliefs about because even though my article didn't say anything about atheism or promote atheism it was about secular beliefs they they looked at my profile looked at my blog and yes. and 
And that's not all of them because the other ones, Lara Wood and several of them within Ferris, I've really get along well with and had quite a bit to do with in um, trying to um, write articles for them, given that they give me the information, I try to write an article. But you, you get that sort of pushback. And um, the, the other article, the recent one I wrote in AIM that you and I talked about a little bit, um, no one really promoted that because it was promoting sort of a Christopher Hitchens-esque type attitude to religion yes. that was uh, anti the Bible. So they don't promote it. Yes. And therefore it supports their point of view, gets out, you know, gets out the message, will help influence people, but they don't want to promote it because they don't exactly agree with the attitude that's to do with it. And I find that really quite appalling because the yes. religious groups, they'll even promote each other, other sects that um, have contradictory beliefs to their own when they feel, when they can correctly see that it's in their own interest as promoting Christianity or com promoting religion in general. Yeah. I don't know how, I don't know how we get over it. Let's put our thinking caps on on that one and see if there is some way. But um, uh, for someone, even like Brian Morris has a petition out um, calling on on people um, to, to sign a petition uh, to do with education. And, um, you know, just for him to get that around to everybody is quite difficult. And I think the support he's got has been quite disappointing. So that's something I'll talk about with Brian um next week yeah but uh yeah, I, I know brian um reasonably well and um he writes a lot gets yes. a lot published and gets on the radio quite a bit yes and one of our strategies for the rationalists is to get on the radio and do that a lot more kind of following brian's lead yes. a little bit there yes. so um yeah he's a good person to talk to yep F finally to wrap up hugh um we're going to get a, another report from a Royal Commission at some stage into institutional child abuse, uh, yes. responses to it. And there's going to be thousands of pages of facts and arguments, and it's going to be well publicised, and everyone's going to hear about it, and it's going to be scathing about the churches, and the grassroots is going to hear about it, and they're going to understand it. Here's my tip. Nothing's going to happen because the leadership of both parties are believers and nothing substantial will actually change. Yeah, okay. Do you think I'm right? I think probably largely, yes. Mm. I think they will They will enforce the church to do something, though. I think they will make sure that you can't go to confession, confess your crime, and then be absolved of any legal uh, and so the person you confess to must report crimes. Right. Yeah. I think I think that they must make um, canon law subservient to secular law. Right. I think that they will do that. I th you know, and a big deal. Is that going to be a big deal? Not really. They will make sure that they have a redress system that's funded by the government. Um, but I think the big effect of the, the whole child sex scandal is... It's shattered any moral authority the church has, all Christian churches, but particularly the Catholic Church. It's shattered it, and you see it in opinion uh, in the in the comments in opinion pieces on um, online, particularly that that people just say, "How can you have any faith in this?" You see it in um, Christina Keneally's articles as a Catholic where she writes about the Catholic Church and advises people, "Well, how can you have any faith in their leadership?" It's just totally hypocritical. It'll be um, a blip on the radar, Hugh, because we've got, you know, the Turnbull government now saying that they're going to reduce 
in a very, very minor amount, some funding for some private religious schools. Yeah, and, yeah. And people don't put two and two together. They don't go, oh, that's right. These religious groups are just, you know, they've done the wrong thing by our society. We shouldn't be helping them out. Oh, no, they're just thinking, oh, actually, I want my old school to have its money. And it, it'll be a blip, Hugh, unless somebody in power wants to do anything. It will be a blip, is my prediction, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think you're largely right. I think they won't be able to totally ignore it, though. And I think it's just up to us and people listening to this that we've got to get up and influence people and do something about it mm. and start start talking to school principals, start writing to politicians, start writing letters to um, the editors and um, start making people, start making it known that our issues are vote changes. I've got no doubt that they are vote changes and we need to, uh, the only way we can make it happen is by influencing people and publicising the issues. Mm. Well, I say, you know, the money you're spending, that CEO that you're going to get, put that person in the corridors of power don't have them writing articles or anything, but just get them knocking on doors in education yeah. minister with ed various education ministers seeking meetings and and finding out which politicians in the various parties are actually secularly minded and let's help them out. Let's give them information and stuff that they can use when they're arguing around the cabinet table. We should we should be finding out who those people are and helping them out um, as much as we can and in the corridors of power. There's, there's, there's my, my last bit on that. So Yeah, agree with you there. Very good. All right, Hugh, thank you very much for joining me for episode 94. Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. Next week might be two episodes, Brian Morrison and The Velvet Glove at different times. Not sure what's happening yet, but uh, until then, uh, bye for now. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast, and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. 
But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.